you're exactly where you need to be. And you're listening to ADD Comedy with Dave Rosaski. Today's guest on ADD Comedy with Dave Rosaski is Eric Boardman. Eric's worn many a hat as a director, producer, host on Discovery Channel, Food Network, Travel Channel, and HGTV. He was a performer and writer on CBS's Tim Conway show when he first came out to L.A., and he was regularly seen on the Disney Channel, and Eric's an Imagineer, having designed the Mickey Mouse Club audition attraction for Disney World. Cool, huh? I know Eric is an alum of the Second City in Chicago. Eric's company at the Second City included Shelley Long and George Went. We talk about that. We hit so many subjects that, well, this is a long podcast. Nice. Enjoy my chat with Eric Boardman. So, so I was going through. Uh, first off, I uh, one of the things about working at Second City is I would always look at the picture. Like when when you go to Second City and you 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 go into the lobby and there are pictures and you just look at these people and you go, wow. Especially if you work there and you look at them, and you go, fuck man, look at all the people that came from here, you know. And yeah, I remember you're saying, what am I doing here? Well, there was, but but I felt that too. Like sometimes there wasn't a day that I. There wasn't a day that I was there that I didn't wonder what I was doing there. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. What I would every and I I did I did uh, I I did ten shows there. I did ten shows. I was there. I worked with Second City for twenty years, and I always felt like I never thought I would work here. And I would well, see I your pictures up there. No. 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 Uh, there was always that feeling of there would be a tap on the shoulder saying there's a mistake being made. You shouldn't be here. Um, and I recall very early days. I arrived in uh, the summer of 70, hang on, 74. Mm-hmm. Summer of 74. I had taken a workshop with Josephine. Forsberg. Josephine Forsberg, who right. is still, in my mind, the best teacher I ever had. Mm-hmm. Sort of the most supportive, the most encouraging. She was, that was a, that was a player's workshop at that yes. time, right? Over at 1717 North North Park. Right. The basement of a church. And... Um, which, by that, the way, if it wasn't for churches, Chicago theater probably wouldn't be as awesome as it is right now because Steppenwolf started in the basement uh, of a church. Because Chicago has churches. They all have basements. Oh, my God. They right? all have basements where they have the, the, the socials and the ice cream things. And, right. Yeah, all the right. events right. after church. Yeah, You're right. Church is... Right. Well, isn't theater kind of a church? Well, but that's the whole thing where you look at you. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you were saying uh, Josephine Forsberg. So, so that was it. Uh, I actually, uh, I had accepted a job in radio. I was headed to Seattle. Mm-hmm. My first choice in my career uh, after I taught school. I taught school because of the draft. Uh-huh. So you you were you were t- you were going you're in college in order to uh, to get what's it, a deferment. Yes, yes. Right. At uh, that time, you could do a deferment. So my student deferment expires in 1969, mm-hmm. and there were two deferments in 1969. Now, the war is going strong in 69. Mm-hmm. Um, and you grew up in Chicago. Chicago, yep. And you grew up in the city of Chicago. No, nope. Okay. A western suburb. Which one? Called Itasca. Got it. If you follow Irving Park Road till it gets really, really dull. Right. That's Itasca. <laughs> <laughs> a town of 3,600 people, Dave. At where, that time. Yes. Right. And when I arrived in town in 1962, they didn't have dial phones yet. I mean, we forget how fast things change. It's so fast. Yeah. So yeah. fast. Uh, and, and, and and what I was thinking about is how many of the people that you, how many of the men that you went to school with didn't get that deferment and went to combat? Oh, absolutely. Oh, yes. The war was really fought by blue-collar kids. Right. And I don't feel much guilt about it because the system was set up 
to there were deferments. If you were in college, you were protected. If you had a job that was necessary, in my case, you could, in 1969, if you were married, you could get a deferment. If you're in grad school, you could get a deferment. Or if you were working and teaching in a school that needed you. Got it. And I thought marriage had the same survival rate as the war, so I avoided that. Okay. <laughs> and got a job teaching in Evanston, Illinois, mm-hmm. about two blocks northwestern. And this is a great place to be. And I'm thrilled. I'm making no money. I'm teaching in a private school, but I'm protected from the war. Right. And that's all I'm thinking about. I think the greatest thing that, that the government did was get rid of the draft. Because them getting rid of the draft made it so that, hey, wait a minute, anybody that's going to war... Anybody that wants to go to war is going on their own, you know, so we're not asking anybody to do it. And the moment that that happened, it just shifted. It was such a, it was an evilly brilliant idea. Well, the, you know, I, I lived with the draft on my ass from age 18 on. And it wasn't until 19, the fall of 69 when the, uh, the lottery began. Right. And they drew our names out of a hat, which determined if you were going or not going. At least that had some fairness attached to it. The lottery. The lottery, yes. Right, yeah. right. So it was, it was, a, it was an e- e- equalizer. Yes. Right. So it, <laughs> I, mean, I could do whole stories about the draft and, and take, did you take the draft physical? Did you ever do that? No, I see, I'm, I was born in 59. Okay. So I think I I'm 1947. Yeah. Um, anyway, so I get a job teaching in Evanston and it's a great place to be. And I'm going to Second City on the weekends. Mm-hmm. I'm going down to see shows. I'm going to folk music. I'm seeing blues. What, I'm what, living... folk, what folk music did you go see? Well, The Quiet Night was my right. favorite club and the Earl of Old Town. Across the street. Right in the heart right. of Old Town. Right. And if you're a kid from the suburbs and you show up at Old Town, you feel like it's exotic and dangerous. Mm-hmm. And I'd walk down Piper's Alley, when which is where the alley. theater was, of course, <laughs> and there were head shops. Oh, my God. And you could buy... Zap Comics, and you could buy incense. And there was a couple theaters, the Aardvark and the Termite, right. which had art. Right. They had artsy art, films. Art, art, No, art. no, it wasn't porn then. Not, not the, then, the, but no, it, the, it became the, porn later. The porn shows up later. <laughs> As it always does. <laughs> but Old Town had a feel of, this ain't Chicago. This is, I'm going to say dangerous, slightly dangerous. Mm-hmm. And if you went into a club like the Earl of Old Town, which were my favorite places to be. Right across the street from Second City. Yes, it felt like you were going back in time, right? Because you were seeing older people, and you were seeing a great mix. It wasn't just young folks. When I went to the Quiet Night, that's young folks. What was Quiet Night? Quiet Night was on Belmont. Belmont. Um, oh, I remember right at the L, right near the L. Right, when the L roared through. Right, exactly. The, and it the, became another. Jimmy Buffett got drowned out when the L came exactly. through. Exactly. Yeah, it became yeah. another. It became a venue that I used to go to. That I can't remember the name, but it, it, the L went. It was right at the corner of Sheffield, Belmont, and Sheffield. Right there. At the that corner. was the quiet right. night. That was a quiet night. And okay. I was there probably twice a month, and the Earl at least twice a month, and Amazing Grace in Evanston. Right. Did you ever go there? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know what their phone number was? No. Fat City. <laughs> that was their phone number. We were just talking about that the other day. But of all the people, I mean, the people that went, like, all this stuff, like living around that time where you've got you've got art, you've got you've got subversives, uh, and you know, you've got the yippies, you've got you know, the SDS, you've got the war going on. It's just this subversive universe that's happening, and I believe that it's. And I, I, I wrote yesterday. I said this is one of the greatest times to be alive. You may not get a moment's sleep, but 
but what happened, what's happening is, is, is inspiring people on levels that they haven't been inspired before. If you are right or if you are left, it, something's happening and we're all feeling it. And, and those people like your age who, it's like an echo, is it kind of an echo? Now? Yes. Today? Oh, yes, yes, yes. The resistance is an echo. There's no doubt about it. The reaction uh, and the fact that we're waking up to the danger of Trump is an echo. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I got to college in 1965, Vietnam really isn't known about it. It's not a real topic yet for us. It starts cranking up by 66 and 67, and it's very clear that we have problems at that point, and the demonstrations begin. Right. The movement begins. And... Um, I would say that period in time. So you, 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 you started. You st- your first election was '68. Yes, Nixon versus Nixon versus Humphrey. Right, that was huge. Oh yeah. I had just turned 21, and I went to the ballot box. I had to go back home mm-hmm. to where my parents lived because that's where I was registered. And I cast the vote, and we all stayed up that night waiting to see who was going to win. Did and you think that Humphrey would win at all? Did you think at all that? He of course, would win? of course, you thought that. Mm-hmm. Um, now remember the papers weren't as politically savvy that the top we didn't have the social media right. so I'm reading the uh, the Daily News I'm reading right. the Trib I'm reading the Sun Times and the American right all four papers in those right. days um, yeah we used to get, we used to get uh, two papers delivered every day we get the Tribune and the Sun Times yeah. delivered. delivered and my father commuted so he bought two papers downtown and brought them home so we had four a day at my house and you had to read them that's right I gotta tell you I, I, it changed my I, who knows if it changed my life but I gotta it, like reading Royco every morning yes uh, and then later on reading Bob Green and reading uh, like uh, <laughs> it's it changes the way you look at the world. It allows you to look at the world. And I never understood how anybody wouldn't have a newspaper delivered to their house. How they wouldn't. I still do. I have to. Mm-hmm. I have to. Um, do you, how old were you when uh, Watergate is breaking? In 74? Uh, I, was, uh, I, was, uh, I was 15. So you're old enough to read the papers. Oh, that clearly. I, but I, again, Every day, if you remember, right. you got up and you just pour through the front page looking for new information, and we watched Nixon twist in the wind mm-hmm. slowly, and the noose is tightening, and the noose is tightening. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. And the same thing that's happening here. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, but you also, at that time, you only had, uh, you, you had, uh, uh, yeah, the CBS, NBC, ABC, News, right? That's all that you had. And Channel really. Nine and Channel Nine, <laughs> Channel Nine, which uh, oh boy, that was the one independent was... station in Chicago. If you did, yeah, where yeah. Bozo was, and yeah. uh, who is the guy that was the the newscaster? Was something Taylor, uh, something Taylor, and it was uh, the news with him. But anyway, uh, so you had those three. Uh, you had Huntley and Brink- Huntley Brinkley. Uh, you had. What's that? Cronkite. Cronkite, of course. And who was ABC? Mm. It might have been... It, it, it doesn't matter, but I do remember going over to my grandmother's house on Friday nights and watching the news. They'd have the news on, and one of the first things that they had was how many, what the casualty count was, how many injured, how many, what the casualty count was. It, like, that's how they started it. Like, and Americans, that changed with George W. Bush. He stopped having that publicized. And the war was being hidden. Right. We weren't seeing it in television. No. Nope. And in those days, what you're talking about is the results are on the TV in our face. Right. Every and, day. Right. And these are people, the, the, and these are men and women, mostly men, who, are, uh, who were drafted. Yeah. In our face. And so they were pulled from families. 
The real turning point was when Time Magazine, one year, published all the people killed during that week in battle. And it was like maybe 10, 12 pages, and you, like a yearbook. 10 and or 12 through, pages. And you saw face after face with hometowns and ages. Yep. So it's say, you know, Corporal John Bilkins, uh, Amarillo, Texas, 19. Right. And you went slowly through this, and if that didn't hit you in the face, like, oh, my God, these are real people. These are our peers dying. And I believe that Congress at that point saw things and said, this is real. And people were waking up and screaming. And shortly after that, the kids, the sons of rich guys and Congress guys started getting drafted. And then they got really, really real. And then one night Cronkite on the news said, this is wrong. We have to get out. And you could just feel the shift. Um, and so you've got that movement of the war thing is going on. You've got, you were talking about art earlier. I'm thinking 1971, 72, 73, the movies I'm watching at the, uh, are all intensely wonderful. And there's revolution going on there to the point where, as I watched the Oscars last night, eh, there's some okay movies. But I remember going to the Evanston 2 Theater on a Friday night and seeing Five Easy Pieces and going to the phone afterwards and calling a buddy and saying, I've just seen a movie that's knocked my socks off. Meet me here. I'm seeing it again. Mm. I haven't done that for a thousand years. Of course. Of course. But it was of important. Course. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. And those those years that you mentioned were uh, The Conversation, Godfather, uh, Serpico, yes. you know, all these movies. Uh, Dog Day Afternoon. Dog oh. Day Afternoon. I, it, and maybe I'm wrong, but I also think Cabaret uh, oh, came my out. Yes, I mean, yes, 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 it was a play, but then the and movie then came out. And then Network, network came is out. like 75. Yeah, Network is 75 because I remember Worth watching, watching again. We oh, saw it last I, night. Ooh, if you man. haven't seen Network, folks. Oh, my God. It's you know, I've, so timely. Well, we watched it. It's really weird also because it's timely. And I think that if you had never seen it, you'd watch it and go, yeah, so. Because we have perspective on that. Yeah. And it's yeah. like, oh, that's not going to happen. Um, you know, that's not. that. Uh, what's his name who wrote it? Um Patty Chevsky. So Patty Chevsky, it's like, what, what, that's hilarious. Like, no, no, that is where we're going. Where we are. Where we are right now, but at that moment, where we are. Yeah. Where yeah. we are. It was insane satire then. Absolutely. We never dreamed. No, that a guy who had a television show, but, but also look at, I look at, I look at um, being there. I look at being there and I go, that, that's what's happening right now. There's an evil cabal that put this together, and I love the ending of that movie. I'm gonna blow the fucking ending of the movie. He's walking, <laughs> on, he's walking into the lake as they're saying, "Who are we gonna elect?" And he, and you realize he's walking on water. He's walking on water. Do you remember the ending of that? I haven't seen it for so. Oh my oh, god! Yeah, yeah. But all of these things, going back to the, going back to the idea of, of being inspired. All of these events that are happening around us, if, if you're an artist or somebody that has a passion for something and you're lacking passion, look what's happening right now because it's affecting, and I think that that's what it is when you said that the, uh, the rich kids and the, the, you know, the members of Congress, their kids are getting involved. When it starts hitting home, that's when shit gets real. At least I think it is. Well, I think that's happening now. I think that it's getting real. The folks, and I'm not going to slam the folks who voted for Trump, but they're going to discover in the next couple of months as their insurance disappears, as the jobs don't come back to West Virginia, the coal jobs, etc., that all the lies he told, I'm sorry, all the this, what things he, he said turn right. out to be lies. <laughs> right. Insane right. hyperbole. Right. Um, 
Right. I think it's going to happen again. Back to Second City. What's remarkable about that world is you're watching the movies, and I'm reading the papers, and we're all doing that, and so is our audience. Right. The audience that comes in that theater knows as much as we do. And I remember thinking when I first came to Second City with Peter Boyle and and Steinberg and, and uh, John Rivers, etc. That's when that's the that's back the old Chinese laundry. So you were there when it was down the street at Wells and where it was down the street at Wells and North. I went like, fall of '65. It's the first time I've gone to the theater. Uh-huh. Over on and, the, and and the the cast there was you said it was who Peter Boyle Peter Boyle goddamn J J Barry I right. think sure I think Steinberg was in it David Steinberg Willard may have been Fred Willard. or may have just left right um, Boyle did so he was doing daily on stage I'm 18 years old and all I know is what they're they're saying the same stuff that I am thinking and it was just so remarkable. That they're speaking the language that I speak. Right. These and these guys were all twenty-five years old, maybe, right. but they were tapping into the world of the eighteen-year-old because we're all the same bunch, basically. And if you turn on Ed Sullivan, you're seeing uh, Alan King, a stand-up comic, and he's talking la cub, the cub, the cub, and he's talking the rhythms of the um, what uh, the, uh, the where's the the Borspell? Uh, <laughs> Belt, thank right. you. Mm-hmm. And then we're watching Robert Klein on television talk language. Similar to us. Right. And then the Lampoon comes around, and the Lampoon's the first one that really is saying exactly the same things we're thinking. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, And those... Oh, and you look at you look at the writers of that. I mean, that that's fucking subversive, and that's what I'm going for. Is that feeling of subversiveness? Um, uh, like Lemmings was just uh, so awesome and smart, um, and uh, that's not funny. That's sick. Which are you familiar with that? Oh yeah, yeah, and yeah. that album too. Uh, but I have them all. Radio dinner. Oh, well, there was a radio show on Sunday nights that was. Every Sunday for an hour, the Lampoon Radio Hour. Right. That's Billy right. Murray, and that's Belushi, and that's Harold Ramis. Right. And, that's, and it's it's the same guys that we know in Chicago. Right. And the fingerprints of Chicago comedy are all over this movement. Yes. Yes. Saturday Night Live would not have happened without the Second City. Absolutely. 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 For sure. I mean, look at that cast. And, and the, only, the only mistake you make in any comedy show is casting. You know, yes, and yes, you know, like that's the only mistake you make. Like, what's the? You know, I, I used to say the only mistake you make in improv is, uh, the, the, wait, saying uh, no. Well, there's that, but I, I, yeah. I don't know how to get into that. Um, <laughs> uh, the only mistake you make in sex and improv is casting. Uh, that's what. I, that's well put. What I well put. I'll so buy that. I'll in buy that, that way, in that way, you think. All right. So so you look at Gilda. Uh, you look at uh, John Belushi. You look at. Uh, uh, at Bill Murray and then you look at Del Close who was like a while there he was the the spiritual guru of uh, SNL for a while and and what impact did Del have on you at Chicago? I was uh, I was in I started his class in 88, 87, 88. Okay. So I was right there at pretty much the, the the genesis of what's called the golden age of improv in, in Chicago. Yeah, yeah. And the Herald starting then. The Herald starting then and that was Dave Pesquese was there and you know like all these all these really great people were sure. performing. So they were the first group that was working with Dell and I was in the second group that yeah. was working with Dell. Dell thought my company was too bourgeois. Oh, I can imagine that. Everybody was, everybody was too... Dell attacked us because we went to brunch. 
<laughs> he felt that wasn't crazy enough. I feel that his impact on me, his impact on me was um, be smart, make connections, okay. listen to the other person, take their idea, uh, and, uh, and and the moment that you take their idea, it becomes your idea, and the, y'all's idea, the two of yours idea, and then realize that you never know what the end is. And what Dell also taught me was this. And I remember him just because I came right. For, I did improv in prisons for a year before I did improv in uh, at, at I O uh, Improv Olympic. So I was I was coming from this very um, Brechtian mask work uh, agit prop improv in prisons, and I was coming at being very like very physical. And Dell's like, stop it, no character, no character. Stop bringing a fucking character on stage. I want to see you connect to you, connect to your partner. Because the moment that you put this thing on, I think he felt, and I, I, who knows, but I think he felt, I was, if if you put a layer over who it is that you are, it's going to be hard to get to your truth. Do you understand? Yeah. He gave us a note like that. And he used to say to us, wear your character as lightly as a straw skimmer. Because he said it was important for the audience to know who you are, because as they left the theater, they would say to themselves, they didn't talk about the reverend they just saw on stage, they didn't talk about the cop they just saw. I like those people. I like those folks I just spent two hours with, and I want to come back and see these folks again. Not to sell tickets, but he, Dell felt it was important for them to like us. Right. right. I agree. Right. Oh, I think about the great guys you saw in Second City. Mm. They, well, Gilda, for instance, would walk out on stage, and the crowd wanted to hold her. Right. We wanted to protect Gilda Radner. Mm-hmm. And when John Candy walked out on stage, we all wanted to be his friend. Right. Oh. Right. Right. Who do? You, right. And I think that one of the things about Second City, the running order is very interesting, because they would talk about the running order, and the running order would be. The first scene uh, would be a cast scene, so you'd see what these people are. You see them interact with each other as real as you could, so that the audience could would start to get to know you. And as it went on, things got crazier, and these characters were able to put on, you know, heavier boaters or you know hats. Yeah, yeah, you yeah, know, and yeah. and then the, the then they have an intermission, and then we come back and we get to know them again in the same sort of way. And it was it was it wasn't done. Mis- there was no mistake in that, and. The, and and it goes back to what you're saying, I believe, about get to know these people, get to like these people. Because if I feel like you're yelling at me, or if I feel like you're doing this clown thing and I'm not at the circus, I don't want to fucking watch it. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the theater we worked at, and all good theater has that intimacy, mm-hmm. where we're all sharing this space, we're all sharing this moment, and I don't recall us ever preaching to the audience. We didn't have to. You know, uh, right. a, a preachy scene's dead anyway. Right. No one wants that. No one wants that. Uh, <laughs> I have to share one story. We went down to dinner theater when I was in the touring company. I'm sure you did this. We went out on the road and we were sent down to uh, St. Louis for five weeks at a dinner theater called the Red Barn Dinner Theater. Who's we? Have you, uh, the touring company. Who's second, The second seat touring company. I know, but who? Okay, that would have been uh, Will Aldous and uh, John Smet and Jan Bina and uh, Stephen Kampman and, uh, hang on, who else in that company? Um, I'm blanking. Okay, forgive that's me, fine. Forgive that's me. Fine. But fine, fine. it was the Red Dog Dinner, the Red Barn Dinner Theater in the middle of nowhere of St. Louis. 
just a tough gig in November. Joyce was with us. Joyce Sloan, yeah. Joyce Sloan. Oh, I love Joyce. And she she was on the she would get in the van with everybody. At Absolutely time. right. And we did a review, and we did in the round. Did mm-hmm. you do it in the round? No. Rotating stage. Oh God. So your exits and interests change constantly. Anyway, <laughs> the show is over. We've done our review. It's opening night. And a fella comes up to me who has a very, very Missouri accent, and he's wearing overalls, Oshkosh overalls. He says, excuse me, I've never seen theater before, but I kind of enjoyed this. He said, I, I watched the beginning, and I tried to figure out, they say, you started off and you were a minister, and then you turned into a policeman, and then later on, you had a top hat and you were dancing, and then later on, you came back and you were a, a, a fortune teller. Well, once I figured out the story, I said, this... This is good stuff, and I might come back again. <laughs> Sketch comedy. <laughs> it would be too cruel to ask him to weave it together. Tell no. me what the story was, but he, you know, he but, liked it. But it's what you were saying about not, not being preached to, which also allows people to put that story together that works for them. That works for them. He enjoyed himself. No, and, and, yeah. and that, but again, looking yeah, at going, yeah. I don't want to be preached to, and I also want to know that my experience is different than that experience is different than that experience is different than that experience. If we did any preaching, I think we simply, on stage, portrayed the world that the audience would know, and they would recognize themselves in the on stage. And there was a phenomenon that was new to me when I got to Second City, which is, when you're improvising especially, you would set the scene. person says, okay, on your suggestion of uh, egg beaters, we now take you to the corner of uh, Belmont and Broadway. And you'd get a laugh from the audience on the street because you were acknowledging that you knew the same city they lived in. I would never have predicted that. And also, there's something... No, I, I totally get that. I totally get that. And also, when you say Belmont and Broadway, immediately, that's that corner's got a personality. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. then... And here, but here's another thing. If you don't know how Belmont and Broadway is, you're still going to enjoy the scene. Yeah, yeah. You're still going to enjoy the scene. Yeah. Because it's not about Belmont and Broadway. It just takes place in yeah. Belmont and Broadway. Yeah. And right. I, I try to, in a given set, create as many intersections as possible to take us all over the city. And occasionally I get us out to uh, Lincolnwood or some other place. <laughs> made no sense. <laughs> yeah. Highway 41 out in Skokie. What? Why is just do this but thing. just yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think for me, my uh, my ability to make references like that might end uh, at somewhere like Fifty Fifth Street, like Hyde Park, or Pilsen. I'd be able to get some Pilsen references. In there. <laughs> I'd be able to get some Pilsen references, which is uh, uh, where George Went grew up. George and Brenda yeah, yeah, grew yeah. up over there yeah. in Pilsen, which is the same, which is the mirror, the mirror architecture. Of my neighborhood, I grew up in Rogers Park, which is so Pilsen's, I don't know, like in the 70 hundred Souths. And I grew up 70 hundred North. And it was the same architecture, same Catholic people. They didn't have any Jews down there. But man. Rogers Park did. Rogers Park did. That's where I was from. So I got all the Jews over there. And, and that's another thing is. Uh, about Chicago, you, you realize like Catholics in Chicago mean something different, I think, than Catholics anywhere else. Yes, yes, um, yes. And the fact that they've just run, they ran everything in Chicago. And you were during the Mayor Daly time. Oh, yes. I really count my blessings that I got to, well, you know, on a day off, I would go down the afternoon down to City Council and watch Mayor Daly run City Council. Um, and what a kick that was. Um, 
if you've ever been to Chicago, you may have seen those shots. They had 50 aldermen. Right. And in those days, we had two independent aldermen. Not re- they weren't Republican. There's 48 Democrats, and there's two guys who are basically Republican, but they're called independents. Anyway, and they would stand up yelling and screaming about something that was going on. And Daly had underneath his desk 50 toggle switches that controlled all the microphones. So if Alderman Simpson stands up and screaming, he would you could watch Daly very clearly reach under and turn off the man's mic. And Simpson would scream and scream and scream. He couldn't be heard anymore. And Daly would hold his hand up to his ear. I can't hear you. I can't hear you. And he uh, could we have a technician come down and fix Mr. Simpson's microphone uh, by tomorrow, please. <laughs> Chicago was run by these guys. I forgot about that. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. I kind of missed that because I was thinking the other day, there's nobody in government who could sit down with Trump and say, listen, buddy, here's how it should be working. Mayor Daley, if he didn't like what was going on, would take you in the back back room and sit you down and say, okay, Dave, from now on, here's the way it's going to work. You got it? Right. You know what to do that, too, was Lyndon Johnson. Yeah. There are pictures of Lyndon Johnson, who was a very tall man and very odd-looking man. Um, there's like a three-shot. It's it's a, it's a triptych of, the, of Lyndon Johnson leaning in, leaning in, leaning in, and this other guy counterpunting on that. And you saw him shrinking, shrinking, shrinking. But there's but but we're, right now we're dealing with a man who you know right now we're dealing with a man who who doesn't know what it's like to be bullied and doesn't know what to do. It, it's all, everything's up in the air. Yeah, we don't have an adult running things. And, no. You know, I even think about the days when Tip O'Neill was around. There'd be an adult that would come in and say, okay, guys, you're off the rails now. Right. Let's get back. Let's get right. back. Didn't Tip O'Neill we don't say- have that. And the press used to be that, but he has nullified the press. It's, it's a, I mean, Mr. Trump's plans are brilliant. I mean, I, I think he's a lot sharper than we give him credit for. Yeah. I mean, all the, the crazy tweets and all the, the silliness that seemed to be around, I think, is to distract us from what their real plan, which is to uh, uh, turn us all into slaves, I guess. I, you know, <laughs> poor, broke slaves, unhealthy slaves. Right, right. And what's also happening is it's keeping, for those of us who are, being, who are aware of it, yeah. it, I'm going, no, I'm not going to be distracted by what it is that you're doing. Yeah. I remember what it is that you said. And those of us who are improvisers, we're listening, I think, for me, all that I can say is, I'm listening on a, on a deep tissue level and I'm hearing things. And I've been hearing this guy for a year and a half and I'm going, he, what he's saying is dangerous and it's starting to lull people and I'm watching it. I'm watching it. Yeah. Um, the challenge I'm having, and I think you are too, you tend to vent on Facebook, um, is how can I pursue my normal life and not be angry 24-7? I find myself these days very short-tempered. As I drive around, mm-hmm. I'm screaming at other drivers. Right. When I get home, my girlfriend has MSNBC on, and mm-hmm. she's watching, and I said, honey, I don't want to know. Oh, you should know what's going on. No, I don't want to know for the next two hours what's going on. Right. I'd like to... Jump into some sports or read a book or something right. other than that because right. it's not good for my health. But you're venting, you're getting out, I guess. Mm-hmm. I'm getting it up. I'm Any getting repercussions 
from your yelling and screaming on Facebook. <laughs> say that last thing. Any repercussions for oh. you? Oh well, there, there, there are people that uh, there are people that will say, you know, I don't like your language, and I'm like, if you don't like the way I paint my house, stop driving by my house. <laughs> you know, if you don't like it, I don't even know who you are. Um, yeah, and, and, and it is strange when when trolls. I'm sorry, when strangers troll you, oh, how dare they? How dare they? And, and you know, so for me, I, I have fun with that. But I think also what really is important, uh, Laura and I got these two cats a couple of months ago, and we have these cats, and every once in a while, one of them will jump up in front of the computer and decide to go, you're going you're gonna to look at me. Uh, <laughs> and also, uh, as I mentioned to you, I'm leaving for... Italy uh, on Wednesday, and when I go, when I go, because last year I was on the road 210 days. Uh, wow. Last year, and the year before, I just discovered yesterday I was on the road. I was doing my taxes. I was on the road 210 days on the road, being out of the country, off the continent, off the grid, off the grid, and not necessarily off the grid. And that you know, I don't, I don't really like being off the grid. Well, we have yeah, the web now, but there was a right. time when if you weren't reading the. Uh, Herald uh, Tribune, right? You could get news. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. And for me, I feel like um, what's connect. My going away, the distraction there is there's stuff going on outside of what's happening right now, and I think that that's an important point. Is um, we're looking at this saying it's life and death, and for some it is. Not for me right now, but I'm still going. I'm still going. I'm I'm here for you. I'm here for you. But there's other things going on. And when I was working in prisons, one of the things, the shows that we put on was uh, was essentially about this. Yeah, and this is what's happening with us. Yeah, you're incarcerated. But there is a world outside of this. And the more that you, the more that you, the less, the less attention you give that world that's outside of here, the more you're going to get um, institutionalized. And the institutionalization, institutionalized doesn't mean crazy. What it really means is you're getting institutionalized and, and you're losing your humanity because you're not seeing what is outside of the wall, what is on the other side of the wall. And that's why visits were so important to, uh, to anybody incarcerated. Visits are really important because it's this fresh air coming outside of here. And the important thing is read the news, read a book, uh, talk to your family, write a letter, do those things that get you out of here and let yourself get distracted. And I think yesterday watching the Academy Awards was great. It was great because for that two and a half hours, whatever it's going to be, I'm looking at, I'm looking at going, oh my God, I love what Jimmy Kimmel's doing. And those of us who are in, uh, who, who, who know about comedy writing are saying, he's a genius at the joke. His timing is great. And looking at the at looking at the singers that are there, and we, Laura and I were watching it, and there was this woman. Oh, it was um, there was a woman who was singing uh, from Mo, Molina, Molina, Mo, whatever. Moana. Mo, yeah. She had Sixteen-year-old kid. Yeah. yeah. She had poise, and so I was thinking of the word yes. poise, and going, oh, poise, and for that, for that two and a half hours, I let myself be distracted, for that two and a half hours. And if I can get two and a half hours of all that away. <laughs> of a holiday. You know? Now, don't tell me what happened at the end. I taped the show. I'll be watching it later. Don't spoil oh, it for me. God. That was one of the greatest things that ever happened. And yes. to watch everybody have this kinesthetic, this simultaneous kinesthetic response. It was like, you know, he was, he was dropping candy from the ceiling but he might as well have just, at that moment, dropped farts from the ceiling. And everybody, at the same time, is going, what just happened? But, you know, Jimmy missed the joke at the end. The Once we revealed what's going on, uh, the, the, the messing up of the envelopes, 
is he had done a Steve Harvey joke earlier, but why he didn't say the Russians hacked the Academy Awards. The part I'm at is four people simultaneously did that line as we watched TV. And I thought, how could he have missed that one? Did he, you see... He was begging. Okay, did you see... Uh, I, uh, I think on the New York Times had one of the pictures of, uh, of everybody on stage... Uh, at that one moment, and and Warren Beatty for some reason is holding an Academy Award, and it was the other people who um, who had won, uh, the, the people who did win, yes. and Jimmy Kimmel stage right, and you look at the picture of him, he is stunned, he's stunned, and I think what ended up happening was, he was stunned. Yes, he was. He clearly was stunned, and later on the re- uh, he was interviewed after the show I, on some follow up on Channel Seven. And he said, I love when things go wrong on my show. I live for those moments. If it's just a predictable show, it gets boring as can be. But he was stunned in this case, and he didn't know what to do. Um, what I'd love to have heard is, because I work in TV so often, and I've often done behind the camera, I used to do lots of audience warm-up, yeah, I, which meant I, that I wore the uh, the headphones, and I was always in touch with the truck, I think the, that, the director of the truck. I think I saw you. Did You did, you did DiCarlo's show or something. Yeah, I did. You did at least yeah. one DiCarlo yeah, show. Yeah. Uh, what was that show? Well, that was a uh, summer replacement show called... The Big Deal? Like Goodnight America or something. No, I, was that the fake talk show we did? No, I'm talking about... I, I saw you do I saw you do warm up on at least one show. Yeah, yeah. But what's fun is the warm up has his headphones on and he's listening to the conversation of the director and the producers of the truck. Wouldn't you have loved to heard what they said the minute that mistake was made? They don't know who the right answer is, by the way. The only two people who know are those two former employees of Price Waterhouse <laughs> who are backstage. The director's going, what the hell? Right. What's going on? And he gets a wide shot, because let's cover all this and get tight on these guys. And it was fascinating. It took two and a half minutes for the stage manager to show up anyway. That was a long... I watched... I replayed it twice last night with a stopwatch. Mm -hmm. I want to know why it took two and a half minutes for the guy at Price Waterhouse to say a mistake has been made. Right. Was that the guy that came? He was. He had, he had headphones. Yeah, he had headphones. But he doesn't show up for two and a half minutes. Right. We've had two acceptance speeches from La La Land. Right. So clearly, the guy at Price Waterhouse knows a mistake is made backstage. He probably says something to. Oh, they have to call the truck. Right. To get the direct. What, what do we do? What do we do? We correct that. Now, why he's out there correcting? I don't know. Why? Who's he? Who's the stage manager? Right. Shouldn't Jimmy come out? Right. But you say Jimmy's stunned. Right. Shouldn't the head of the. Uh, the Academy come out and say something. There, we didn't have anybody of authority. Interesting. Interesting. But the stage manager has the most authority at that right. moment. Right. He's the representative of the director there on the floor. Right. So he comes out with the proper card. He shows it to somebody who shows it to somebody else. Meanwhile, Warren is dealing... My heart goes out to Warren. Oh, very He's much an so. older man. Right. Very he much so. He probably... He recognizes her problem, but he doesn't know what to do. Right. That's what I was noticing, too. And shows it to Faye Dunaway, right. who should not be reading anything. No. <laughs> no, her face is being held oh. up with some kind of uh, a bo- a pillars. Oh. And, 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 oh. oh, that just that moment of looking at that moment. But that's what I'm talking about. I'm, it was I'm real. Saying, yeah. I'm saying we're living in a time right now where nothing is working the way that we thought it was going to fucking be working. Boy, you're so right. If you had asked me what my life would be like today, I would not have predicted this. Yeah. yeah. No! Nothing is working. 
that we played by the rules and we did the things we're supposed to do and it's just not paying off. Right. And it and I think there are so many people. So um there's And that's of, sorry for interrupting, but, no. but that's why Trump gets elected. The angry folks in Idaho who have been farming and doing their work right. and paying their taxes right. and behaving themselves right. are pissed off. They're fucking pissed off. But so are we. Right. We're just as pissed off. Oh yeah. And now more so. <laughs> yes. And rightly so. Right. Deservedly so. Right, exactly. Fuck you, Idahoans. Uh, I was in- you're always attacking. I must say on Facebook, you're always saying fuck you to the GOP guys. Oh, my God. I am. I can't take it. And yesterday, the big thing was, uh, I was saying, whoever was sitting behind Halle Berry, uh-huh. I hope that she was a Republican because she got no view. She just got Halle Berry <laughs> hair. It's like, oh, boy. But uh, but I uh, looking at all those, like, like the, the question of... If you were if you were to think what it was that your life was going to be now, uh, if you thought if you think hi Laura, um, uh, if if you thought I that, thought this was a closed set. <laughs> well, the closed set. She's brought clothes. No, so clothes. brought clothes. So we're, all uh, set. we're dry cleaning. <laughs> all right. Continue. Um, uh, so so all that all that you thought was going to be is not going to happen anyway. Right. right. Whatever right. you anticipate your life, whatever you anticipate your life is going to be, that's not going to happen. It's just so important to recognize that. And I haven't talked about this in a while. The idea of like expectations, like fuck your expectation, fuck your expectation. So last night, when this kinesthetic response happened with all these fucking people, now that was an evening of surprises, wasn't it? So you have your standard surprises that people expect to be surprised of who won. Then you have your surprises of that that uh, tour group coming in and watching all those people get their own fucking personal surprise experience and we get to watch them. And then another surprise that no one saw coming. No one saw that coming. Yeah. And so all these pillars that that, that are holding us up, they were, we thought, no, they weren't there. Or they were there and... The infrastructure of the state of, of, of the country is fucked up anyway. So why shouldn't this the spiritual infrastructure be fucked up? Your point of the expectations is on the money, and I'm thinking about those folks in Syria who ten years ago are thinking, well, here's what my life is going to be like, and their life is truly messed up. True. You and I aren't going to suffer terribly for the next five to ten years. The West Virginia coal miner who's out of work, he's going to suffer more than we are. Yep. Yep. Uh, but no one deserves to eat the shit sandwich that's being served currently. No, 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 no. And and I'm not one to go, well, at least we, we're not in Syria because no, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to be the one that's like, yeah, you know, you know yeah, you know, it's, it's stage two cancer, but I know people who are at stage four cancer. It's like, <laughs> no, fuck no, no. Everybody, I am not going to compare my woe to somebody else because that that takes away my empathy. That removes my empathy. But I, it's okay to say at least I'm not that bad off. If I start feeling sorry for myself, which yes. is a dangerous thing, and I do it quite often, is, oh, woe is me, Harriet, we should be doing better than this. But you know what? We have a roof over our heads, and we got food on the table. Yep. It's and that, there are not bombs blowing up outside my window. No. And when you get in your car, you know, today's biggest shock was, you know, Laura gets into her car, she has a Prius, and I don't know if you know about this, but people still catalytic convert. They steal catalytic converters off of Priuses. So this morning I hear a car, and Laura's like, 
my someone stole our, my catalytic converter, oh my the, out of Priuses, and it happens on this block. It was Priuses, it was uh, Hondas, and you go, what? How long does that theft take? I think they fucking got it down. I think they got it. I think they could do pop it the hood in five minutes. It's not even pop the hood. You go underneath, you rip it them, and they take it out. Do they have to jack it up? No. no. A guy on a board no. slides under. Yep, absolutely. With a flashlight and a yep. And wow. I saw somebody working on a car. Like, why is that guy working on a car at 2 o'clock in the morning? It's like, I had no idea. Fuck those people. Anyway. Um, wow. But we a have new a, crime. Uh, it's crazy. Radios were stolen a lot back 20 years ago. But, oh, uh, my God. When you, like, they stole my cassette player. Like, oh, right. my yeah, God. Yeah. I had one guy. I was auditioning for a commercial uh, right by Cabrini Green. And I was auditioning for a commercial there. And I, I had my lock my car. And I came back. And the window was smashed. There was blood on the seat. And the radio was stolen. So somebody took their fist. They Like, what? For a $20 radio. Because they can't sell that radio for much. Especially with blood on it. (laughs) You know, it's $15 just to get the blood off the radio. Yeah, the warranty is probably violated right there. It has blood on this radio. (laughs) Um, But looking at all those things, like, yeah, the Syrian people and the people in Lebanon during during that war and the people that were in uh, 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 Bosnia-Herzegovina and Yugoslavia and when they had had the, the Olympics there and then two years later, it's, everything's gone. It's all gone. You're going to be thinking about this. Are there groups that are, her lives have not been changed in the last 10 years, 20 years? No, no, technology is taking care of that. Technology and also the climate change is taking care of that. Those people What's that? I haven't, t- heard, haven't read about that. That's yeah, a climate change. It's a <laughs> climate change. Climate it was change. 70 degrees in Chicago last week. I know, I was there. I was there. I was in Chicago. People in February. I know, I know. When when I was married, my wife, uh, she, I moved out here, and I moved out here in... January of 95 she moved out here in July of 96 and she moved out here and because she had a job in Chicago so uh, we were married at the time and she she said I can't fucking take the Februarys I can't take the Februarys in Chicago but you go and then living out here and then going somewhere else and you're like I have no idea what month it is yeah the 28 days of February was the longest month ever (sighs) right yeah Uh, how close do you live to Lincoln Park uh, I probably I don't know. Well, you, you would drive out of the lagoon occasionally. Well, uh-huh. is I lived in Evanston when I was working in the theater. Mm-hmm. And so I drove Lakeshore Drive every day. And you would watch the thawing of Lincoln Park Lagoon eventually might thaw by April. Someone would always throw a trash can out that would freeze oh, in the ice. Yeah. There would be a trash can in the ice. Right. And there was a celebration that day when it sank because that meant spring might be here. The ice has melted enough for that trash can to disappear. What I also love is the moment, like you're in February or March, you get one of those March days where it's 55 degrees and everybody's The jacket comes shorts. off. Oh, oh my you, God. you roll your sleeves up to feel sun on your arm. Oh, yeah, but yeah. it was also like, look at all the girls who now have skin. You go, skin. Oh, wow. oh my God, yeah. skin, right? I forgot about skin. I forgot about all that. But that's, that's about being alive. You know, right there, those experiences yes, yeah. that we all experience that are... That are that are uh, have, have to do with weather or have to do with something other than somebody made a bad voting move. Like we got to remember that there are there are those moments of thunderstorms in Los Angeles. Those moments of yeah, people dug the rain. The last uh, I certainly did. We had weather for the first time, and you're talking about being in the moment. 
were truly alive at that moment. I had to, on that rainy Friday, I had leaks coming into my ceiling, and I've got a bucket that's filling up every hour and a half. So I have to go to Home Depot at 5 p.m. on the rainiest day of the year. And as much as I'm cursing it, I'm digging it because this is so different. This is so different. It's no different than 3 a.m. in Chicago, hoping your car starts after a long set at the Second City. But I felt very, very alive as I fought the weather and the rain. And it was good. It was good. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, that's, what else is happening? That's what else is happening. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Is, is that. There's these other things that are happening that we want to give a lot of attention to. And Laura and I will wake up and, you know, we'll get up and we'll, we'll chat and we'll laugh in bed and we'll do that laughing in bed, which is really fun. And then we'll both go to our devices and go, what's happening? You know, what's happening on our <laughs> Think devices? Think of her notes, yeah. Yeah, we'll, yeah. Just, we'll, we'll do that. But we also, and so an important thing for that is, for me, it's that first part. Is that part of like, yeah, I'm in bed with, this, with my best friend and we're laughing. We're just laughing. And we're telling each other we love each other. And then there's outside, there's this other stuff. So anybody who I think is going through that, that, pur- that, that, that purgatory or the hell of going, I can't wake up in the morning and not be anxious, we have to look around you. We get to look around you and go, oh, there are two cats in the yard, life used to be so hard, but now it's really busy. We have that. You put royalty got... on that, be careful. <laughs> exactly, I didn't sing it. Okay. <laughs> Which reminds me, you know Joe Liss, right? Sure. Okay, so Joe and I were on... The mayor of Tidyville. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. So Joe and I were on <laughs> one of those shows, Make Me Laugh. No, you didn't make me laugh. With Bobby Van? It was one of those shows. Okay. Maybe it was a redoing of that. So it had to be... I love Make Me Laugh. So... But that was the late 70s, I think. But this was... I think they had a redo. Okay, okay. They had a redo of it, and Joe and I were partnered on it, and they said, you can do whatever you want, but you can't do any songs that... Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, of course, we did a Disney song. We did a parody of a Disney song. It's like all the stupid songs to do. We had to do the one that's the most legit. Do they stop you midway through? No, no, no. We went to commercial, and then they were like, we're going to do that again. You had a song. You did a song. We told you not to do a song. We told you not to do a song. You have one job. Um, so, yeah. If you got to L.A. earlier, you would have been on the gong show. Everybody I know did at least one or two appearances in the gong show. If you did were you? funny. No, I did not. Um, I was busy writing in those days. I had you've done an a ad lot, job. You've done a lot of fucking work. You've done a lot. <laughs> Not of the work. last two years, but yeah. But, well, yeah, but the yeah. thing is, like looking at all those, looking at everything that you've done, looking at the shows that you put yeah, together, yeah, yeah. looking yeah, at the yeah. shows that you wrote on. Uh, it seems to me that you were always like all the so many people that I've talked to, like going, "What I can do that? I can do that? I can do that? I can do that?" When when you're, you're, you, have a, you have an idea of what your career is going to be, you know, let that go right away because you're... Which I didn't. I mean, I, I just kind of fell into things and rode the, uh, the current and was lucky enough, when I got to L.A. in 1978, there was nothing hotter than saying the second city. Mm-hmm. It was on your resume, you got a meeting instantly because mm-hmm. SNL has exploded and uh, SCTV is still coming. But... The and so wherever I went, doors opened, and so I, oh, could you try this for us? Could you do this? We'd love to meet you. And so I would, I came out uh, to write advertising. I got moved by a company called Dick and Bert, who did Chicken that. Man. Yes, yes. So oh, they, they had the fucking hilarious commercials. That's what I wrote. I wrote commercials for four years for those guys, oh. winning award after award after award. 
But they moved me to L.A. I had done right. Second City for four years. It was time to move on. Did they get subsumed by somebody? No, no. We came out here to uh, to do television and more radio commercials and lots of radio commercials. And uh, they the partnership exploded at one point. Exploded in a bad way? Yep. Uh-huh. yep. It blew up. It blew up because there was a third person who came in and said... You don't need him. Oh. You're smart. You're funny. You don't uh. need him. And you think about how many partnerships really have gone a long time. Bob and Ray right. and, and uh, Laurel Hardy did. But Abbott Costello hated each other. And Martin and Lewis hated each other. And there's always somebody who feels they've been put upon. Right. That I'm working harder than you. Right. And that's what happened. Yeah, Lewis and Martin. Yeah. They were the number one act in show business. Right. They made more money and more appearances for four years and then stopped talking to each other. Right, right. Fascinating. Right. My partners did that. They One guy was told, I don't need the other guy. He believed it, and they split, and uh, it wasn't amicable. And I got caught in the middle of, ooh, like a divorce. But uh, they taught me an awful lot of things, I must say. Like what? Is, well, if you're writing a 60-second radio commercial, you've got... 55 seconds plus a tag, you haven't got a lot of time to do things. So you've got to create your conflict immediately. That opening line, better define where we are, is, uh, uh, Reverend, uh, should you be using a hammer on that uh, vacuum cleaner? Right. Paint your picture. Right. Is uh, It was the best training. Second City taught me how to think funny, I think, though I've been reading Mad Magazine all my life, right. listening to Stan Freeberg and, and right. all the all stuff we all did. But... The advertising world taught me how to squeeze it down and get to the action right away. And uh, the first time I wrote a commercial for these guys, I delivered my copy, and I had timed it with a stopwatch because it's, it's 55 seconds. And the exec looked at the copy and didn't read it and slammed it down and said, it's wrong. He dismisses my copy without reading it, Dave. And I went, what's going on? He said, your sentences are way too long. People don't talk like that. He wanted overlapping dialogue. He, visually, he had to see it. Wow. So in one 10-minute, I went, oh, my God, oh, my God. So I go back to my typewriter, not computer in those days, right. and I rewrite it with overlapping dialogue. He mm. said, now we got something. Mm. Mm. And he taught me that what a good commercial should be as if we're in an elevator overhearing a conversation. Don't go right at the, I mean, the, the tire-kicking commercials bug me. I want the to, what commercials? The, a tire kicking commercial. Uh-huh. A guy who comes, who gets your attention, and just pitching right to me. Right. Like all the uh, the shop at home shows. Right. No, no. Is the stuff that works the best is I hear something going on, viewer, and I'm intrigued, and I lean forward. What, what, what's going on? What's going on? Now I'm invested, and now I can say and do anything I want at that point. Right. So yeah, you suck them in with. Um, Overhearing the conversation. It's it's that it's that thing that um, I mentioned before uh, on the podcast. It I want to say Elaine May said it. I could be wrong. If you want to be interesting, be interested. And mm. what that means is when 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 you and I are in a scene together, and I'm paying attention to what you're doing, and you're paying attention to what I'm doing. Whatever it the fuck is that we're doing, people are going to want to go. What's happening? Because at the at the core of all of us is the need is the joy that we get from being a voyeur, and it's why ah, theater yeah, yeah, yeah. is yeah. a light 
up there and darkness where I just paid 15, yes. 25, 35 yes, dollars. Yes, yes. To sit there and go, I, I'm going to be a voyeur. And if you're up there like mealy mall fucking talking about nothing, I'm not going to give a shit. But if you start to whisper and like, boom, like this, I'm going, what the fuck is happening? Wait, 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 shush, shush, shush. This is happening here. Yeah, the first time I did Soto Voce on the stage. Oh my God. Started it all. Yeah. Probably the he Greeks. might have been named Soto Voce. <laughs> probably the Greeks or something. But the right. minute the guy dropped the volume and made the audience step forward yeah. and listen, oh my God. Well, there's a difference between somebody saying, I'm going to kill you, and somebody going, I'm going to kill you. Like, what the? What just happened? What just happened? And, and, and what I've been teaching a lot these days is something that I landed on. It's just so fun to do because it's so. People want, don't want to do it unless they that they want to do it. Is I'm teaching people how to be um, how to live attention. The idea of don't Explain. fucking. So if I think all improv is essentially an adult version of I'm not touching you, like you know that kid I'm not touching, I'm not touching, I'm not touching. You know, it's just that, and it's like I'm poking at you without touching you. Um, I'm going, you know, you and I are going to we're going to kiss, but no, not the fuck right away. We're not, and the audience is going what they're going to what what what. And all of that, and living in that, and the way that... So that frustration we, is part of it all. It really, really is. Yeah, yeah. And it's also people going, oh, I don't want to look at that. I'm not, I, really, I shouldn't be looking at it. I shouldn't be looking at it. Looking at it, but having the gesture of I shouldn't be looking at it while they're looking at it. And that's really tough because the outside world says, blow the tension, but I'm sitting in the audience so that we can watch the fucking tension. That's yeah, yeah, what I'm yeah. paying for. Yeah. So if at a, so if you're doing an improv scene and suddenly you, you you know I'm watching you build up this tension and then you just get distracted by something, I'm like, what the fuck? You just you where's your precision? Where's your fierceness? Where's your hunger? Where's your drive? Mm-hmm. And you got fucking distracted? Fuck you. Kellyanne Conway is a fucking genius of that kind of shit where she listens to what you're saying she thinks that you're talking she agrees with you in that moment and then she changes the subject and most people don't know how to go wait a minute this is no 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 you're asking you're answering a question I didn't ask answer the question I asked stay on point but she's an obfuscator the moment when she invented the phrase alternative facts oh my god do you recall the? if you haven't seen it folks get the clip because she actually does a stutter step. She's, she hesitates and she comes up with the phrase. And she's inventing it, I think, at that very moment. And she's kind of proud of it. But at the same time, it's really awkward. And she's saying as if, can I get this out? Can I slide this by them? Uh, right. I know this is insane, but I'll turn... No, no. Uh, Sean Spicer was uh, doing uh, alternative facts. Right. As if that's a thing. And we go, wait a minute, is that a thing? Is that a thing? Today, I've online, as I'm doing my railing over here, and uh, I, somebody said, it's, that's a false fact. And I went, what could, what's a false fact mean? Because as far as I know, one and one is two. Yeah. There's no falseness about that. And, I, and that, I think, when we stop listening to facts... Or understand, he says, truth and fact are, are the same thing. I'm like, no, truth and fact are not the fucking same thing. If I say to you, um, you know, we're doing a scene, I say to you, uh, Bob, um, you're late. And uh, Bob, you're late. This is the second time I've told you that you're late. This is the third time you're late. The guidebook says I have to fire you. Like, all those are facts. You're late. You're supposed to be here at 9. It's 9.05 now, okay? This is the second time you've been, that I've told you that you're late. That's a fact. The, uh, this is the third time that you're late. That's a fact. The guidebook says I have to fire you. That's a fact. But the next line of that scene is, 
I don't want to fire you. That's a truth. That's the truth. Yes, yes, yes. That's and so good. a fucking fact is one thing and a fucking truth is another thing. Yeah. And when we're dealing with an improv scene or life in some manner, we're talking about facts and then suddenly what I want to do is this. What's your truth? Now that we got the fucking facts out, what's your fucking truth? And don't bullshit me about something that's a false fact. I don't know what you're fucking talking about anymore. I know about all the cheap scenes I did at Second City and feeling guilty for those. Well, but that, but, that, but that was enough. But also, let's look at that and go, that was another time, too. Yes, it was. The The joke he went for in 1975 and 76 is very different than the laugh today. Um, and you I, talk saw, about I sound like an old man when I talk about it, but we didn't have to have a laugh every 15 seconds. Mm -hmm. And I see the shows today, and they do. Right. Because the audience grows restless. Right. And we could take time setting up scenes. And your tension. Look at that scene with Alan Larkin and Barbara Harris. Right. The, where he's the, the folk singer, the classic one in the museum. Oh, okay, great. The museum scene. The right. museum scene. Yeah. There's not a laugh in it for a couple of minutes. They're just setting it up. Isn't it like an 18-minute scene or something? Oh, yeah, yeah, that? yeah. But it just grows and unfolds. Right. Today's audience would be going off, the, be checking from yeah. their phones immediately. Yeah, probably. Screaming at the audience. Yeah. Right. Get on with it! Get on with it! Right, yeah. right, right. Right. But, uh, yeah. So. Uh, but that doesn't mean I have to play like that. Correct. And, correct. And and so you were talking about Alan King uh, before. You were saying this is going on at Second City, yeah, yeah. and then there's your Alan King. Right. You know, and Alan, who I love too, by the way. Oh, right. Funny but, is funny. Absolutely, absolutely. Funny is funny. Um, but but Alan they became King, funny, and then they became hip. Absolutely. That, that, that's the big difference. Yeah. Right. So so you got Alan King, and you got Mort Saul, and you got Stan Freeberg, and you got all, and, you got, and then you got, you know Lenny Bruce. Uh, you got like we didn't even talk about Lenny Bruce, but you have all that, and then you have Second City, and the committee, which is around it at that time too. Crazy. I had Carl Gottlieb here. You know Carl very well. Fucking Carl, man. Like Jesus, that guy was all over the place. And and there's, there's a guy. There's nothing who funny about Jaws. <laughs> but, but it was the great script saying, he wrote. Right. Yeah. He wrote Jaws. He wrote the Jerk. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And you go, okay, there's somebody who's not pigeonholed, but there's also somebody who knows comedy. And oh, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. And crazy. I never saw him on stage. No, no. I don't no. know if he performed a long time. I don't know. Say that again? Did he perform a long time? Uh, I don't know how long he performed. I do know that you know he was part of the committee and started a committee, and he also well, started right. a committee. He came out of there. Okay. He came out of that committee, and he, and he also was somebody that that worked with Gary Austin, who started the Groundlings. Yeah, 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 yeah. So again, you have no fucking idea what you're going to do. Or who you're going to know. That's what's great about being 25 years old. It doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. You're just doing stuff. You're doing stuff, and if you've got a, a day job to keep the rent paid, you're okay. And I look back at my company, The Second City. But I started off with George Went and, uh, and, uh, and Will Aldous and Miriam Flynn. And we all had Joe jobs. Miriam's a waitress and uh, Will and I are school teachers. And uh, George is helping his father at the office. But we, all we know is that on Wednesday nights, we love going to class. And this two hours of improv class that Josephine is teaching us is so satisfying. We don't think we're going to perform on the stage. That isn't the goal. The goal is it's just a fun thing to do on a Wednesday night. And then on a crazy whim, Josephine says, uh, Eric, uh, Bill Murray is going to New York. He's leaving the company and they need people to audition to replace him. And I signed you up for an audition tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. And I went, Josephine, no, 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 no. She said, well, Eric, you have to go. Be rude not to go. 
That's the Midwest talking. <laughs> Out in L.A., you wouldn't show up. But Josephine said, yes, it'd be rude for you not to be there at 9 a.m. <sighs> okay. I don't want the job, but I'll show up. And lo and behold, I've had a real job since. Right. From that moment on, right. I realized this is something maybe I should do. Mm-hmm. It's fun. And I'm sure you have the same feeling. When you went to the second city as a viewer, as just an audience member, you saw these folks on stage having fun. There were six or seven people on stage having fun. You went, how could I get a piece of that? And it wasn't about making a living because it never even occurred to me what they were being paid, if they were at all. Um, it was just something fun to do. And I liked the people around me. Oh, I want to spend more time with George and Will and Miriam and Bernie and... Uh, Bernie Solins. The whole thing. Oh, Bernie right. Solins. Right. And, and that's... It's, it's so fun when stuff comes around again on the conversation that we're having. That's the reminder that we're alive. We're not... We're, we're alive to have fun with those people that we're with. We're not here to be sufferers. And if yeah. we want to make a choice to go, I'm going to wake up every morning and without laughing with Laura, I'm going to go directly to my device. <laughs> That's a choice that I'm making. Yeah, but yeah. I always have to remember that it's... When I think about my experience at Second City, I think about the people that I love working with. I didn't think about the great work that we did, which we did. I think about the relationships that inspired me and the passion that we all had and the focus that we had and the idea that we were 25. I mean, I wasn't 25. I was always older than everybody, but the idea that that we're 25, 28, 30, 35, whatever it's going to be, and we're living our fucking lives. Yeah. I have to tell you one story because I want it on uh, tape, recorded for posterity, (laughs) is... I went to that audition in 1974, August of 74, and gave the worst reading possible. Maybe the worst audition ever given to man. And I walked out of the theater that morning. I got there at 9 a.m. I leave at 9.20, humiliated. But it's okay. I didn't. I wasn't going for the job. Right. And my friend Will has gone in at 9.30, and he comes out afterwards. I'm waiting for him because we're driving back and forth together. And he's given the worst audition known to man, too. It's okay. He's going off to grad school. I'm going to Seattle to be a disc jockey. It's not a problem. So we leave the Second City Theater at 10 a.m. that morning, and we buy a couple of bottles of wine, and we go down to Oak Street Beach. Mm-hmm. And we're going to have a couple of drinks, and who knows what's going to happen. And we end up meeting some girls, and we sleep on the Oak Street Beach, which is all pebbles. There's no, there's no right. sand, if you remember. And we sleep overnight, one blanket, four people, and I get back to my apartment in Evanston about 7 a.m. hurting, to say the least. And the phone rings at 8 a.m. Eric, you have a call back at 9. <gasps> what? <laughs> what? I'll be there. And back, because you... Do you remember who called? Uh, Raul. Raul uh-huh. Moncada was our uh-huh. director. Uh-huh. And uh, Raul was the stage manager. Right, stage manager. But he was also our director uh-huh. for, the, for the new touring company. Uh-huh. And uh, because you're 25 years old, a shower and a clean shirt... We'll revitalize you. Yeah, yeah, right. And so, oh, I got called back. I wonder if Will got called back. Oh, God, it's awkward. And the phone rings, and he says, did you just get a phone? Yes, I did! Shower in our Volkswagen, pick up some coffee and donuts on the way down. We walk into the theater, swaggering, thinking, if that bullshit yesterday got us called back, we must be a lot better than we thought we are. So I give a really good audition. And Debbie Harmon uh, is there helping. She's one of the rest of the people. I think Betty Thomas is there helping. Anyway, and the very next day, Raul says, we want you to come to the company. 
And I go, this is amazing. And they, they're just forming a temporary company for a while. It's a big deal. Is that We guarantee six Monday nights, right. but it's something. And we jump at the chance. And so maybe on the fourth or fifth show, I said to Raul one day, Hey, Raul, I have a question. Why did you call me back? I thought I gave the worst audition known to man. Why, oh, why did you call me back? He said, you don't want to hear this. I said, I sure do. He said, well... The night before the auditions, I had gone to a party. And the party broke up at 4.30 a.m. And I was so hungover from the partying, alcohol and drugs, and wild sex. I was so hungover, when I looked at my notes, I didn't know anything about the first six guys auditioned. And to be fair, I called them back. So that fluke... That strange fluke. Otherwise, I'd be a disc jockey in Seattle, working on my third wife and having an alcohol problem, being a rock and roll guy at my age. Um, <laughs> but because he was a good, honest Midwestern guy, well, it's only fair to call these six guys oh back. God. So all six of us got called back. And Will and I both got in as a result. So was there a divine hand shaping? I don't know. Right? Sometimes the door is open. Oh. Sometimes you notice. Sometimes right. you don't. But the door opened, and I ran through. Let's stop there. That was really great. That's really, I love the divine hand. Because you never know. No, you don't know. There were six or seven people on stage having fun, and I thought, how can I get a piece of that? Isn't that what we're all looking for? A good old piece of that? <laughs> Thank you, Eric Boardman. That was a great chat. Eric's got a great not-my-finest-hour coming up after these announcements. There's that hotel ding. March 2nd to the 5th, I'll be having my Italian premiere at the Welcome International Festival 2017 in Rome. Then it's off to workshops in Ravenna and Milan. Hoo-cha, right? April 21st to the 23rd, I'll be in San Francisco for another premium workshop with the fantastic Rachel Hamilton. April 28th to the 30th, I'll be back in Bozeman, Montana to work with Verge Theater. June 9th through the 11th, I'll be back in Seattle. And as always, I acting, my online acting classes. If you live somewhere, chances are I'll be teaching there. All workshop information at DaveRozowski.com ADD Comedy with Dave Rozowski is produced by Laura Parker and me. Here's Eric Boardman's Not My Finest Hour. And now, Eric Boardman's Not My Finest Hour. I'm 22 years old and smitten. Oh, I'm madly in love with a woman from Chagrin Falls, Ohio. Mm -hmm. I'm living in Chicago. And I drive to her house in Chagrin Falls. Her father is the number one banker in town, maybe the only banker. Mom is kind of straight-laced. And I'm there meeting her parents and spending the weekend at their house. And I'm in a guest room, and I've just moved my stuff in. And uh, I know where the bathroom is near the guest room, but I don't know where the other bathrooms are. In the middle of the night, I wake up and I have to take a leak. Not uncommon. Shit, where's the bathroom? I think it's down here. I find myself going downstairs into the kitchen. It's three in the morning. I take a leak in the sink of the kitchen. Theoretically, it's hygienic. There are no germs, I'm told. Urine is sterile. It's not a big issue. I'm going to pee in the sink. Now, as I'm peeing in the sink, who else should wake up? Standing at the kitchen door is her mother, Going, and what are you doing? Our relationship was never 
ever the same. Whether she ever told Debbie about this, I don't know, but it was icy for the next two days in that house. Oh my God, you peed the sink. <laughs> there were no dishes in the sink, I don't think. Yeah, I peed the sink, and I've done it since. Not at her house. No, that's really good. 